Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 125 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be speaking with director David Cronenberg. His many films include Scanners, Videodrome, The Fly, Crash, Existence, A History of Violence, Eastern Promises, and Cosmopolis. His first novel, Consumed, is out now. And now, here's our interview with David Cronenberg. All right, so we're here with David Cronenberg. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Okay, so first of all, you've said that when you were a teenager, you were reading science fiction magazines and submitting stories to them. So which science fiction magazines did you read? There were three uh, primary ones, Fantasy and Science Fiction, Galaxy, and Astounding. Um, and uh, I think the, of the three, I, Fantasy and Science Fiction was my favorite because it was the most uh, broad in terms of the kind of things that they published. Astounding was more hardcore science tech kind of sci-fi. And Galaxy was, I think, somewhere in between. So it, uh, it was fantasy and science fiction magazine that I submitted a story to when I was about 16. And I got a, a really great rejection letter, <laughs> which was written, you know, the, as it was one page, which was uh, on one side, it was a printed cover of uh, one of their recent issues. And on the other side uh, was handwritten. I think it was handwritten. Well, maybe it was typed. Uh, it said, this came quite close. We would be glad to see more. And so that was very encouraging, although I never did actually submit <laughs> another story, but it was nonetheless very encouraging. Yeah, so what was that? Do you remember what that story was or what it was about? I do remember. It was about a dwarfish kind of creature, man for a person, who lived in isolation in a kind of basement apartment uh, and very reclusive, and uh, but had a picture on his wall of a street in Paris. And uh, he kind of lived in that picture and had huge fantasies about the life of the person who, who would have painted that picture and, and kind of envied that person and kind of identified with him. And much later discovered that the person who had painted that picture was exactly a kind of guy like himself, a recluse, uh, not very attractive physically, living in a basement. <laughs> <laughs> that was the story. Huh. So, I mean, it sounds like a lot of the themes that you've explored throughout your career um, go back to that early story. Um, I think you could make the case. Yep. I, it's, uh, I mean, you know, I had no insects. I had no transformation. <laughs> <laughs> All of the themes that people seem to think that I must have, which are, you know, like a, a checklist of themes and so on, which I don't have. But uh, but they do, you know, my nervous system is what it is, and it, 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 there are things that I keep returning to, obviously, because they seem to have some, you know, significance for me as touchstones, as metaphors, whatever. Yeah. I mean, w would you say that you were influenced by the stories that you were reading in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and Galaxy and Astounding? I can't really say that I was influenced by them, just encouraged by them, you know, to, to be creative and to, I mean, they did, they did delight me. And uh, I, I remember some of them, uh, one was called rat in the skull, which I, I still remember that, um, 
trying to remember the name of the writer, Raj. Hmm, I can't remember it. But um, it was, uh, you know, there, there just were, it was just very stimulating. I, influenced, well, who knows? You know, I think I was influenced by everything, including the movies that I was going to see, some of which, of course, were sci-fi but and fantasy, but a lot of them were cowboy movies. You know, I was influenced by everything, basically. I can't really point to one specific thing. So what is it about that rat in the skull story that makes it stick out in your mind? I think it was Rod Phillips, that seems to be. Uh, it was just very, it was a, it was bizarre and yet very touching. Uh, uh, it, it was, you, you should read it, you know, I'm sure it's around somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I won't get into it, the details of it, I'll probably get it wrong. I haven't really, I haven't read it for, you know, what, 60 years maybe. So, yeah. uh, but uh, I, it just, I just happened to pull that one up. One of the, the, the writers who I came to much later was Philip Dick. And uh, I don't recall reading any of his stories in any of those magazines, although it's possible that I did, and just it just didn't sort of uh, sort of stick with me at the time. So it, he was a really kind of a later uh, uh, passion of mine, uh, quite a bit later, really. Well, yeah, I mean, he's one of my favorite authors as well. Do you want to say um, how did you discover him, and um, what was it about his work that uh, made a big impression on you? Well, just, you know, honestly, quite a bit later. I mean, maybe not until I was in my 30s. Uh, so a lot later. Uh, and I can't remember exactly why. Uh, it's conceivable that it, it it was because people were proposing him as uh, uh, possible movie projects and so on. And, of course, movies were being made uh, from his work. And uh, I just started to read. I have a bookshelf right behind my me where I'm talking right now that's, well, actually, two bookshelves. It's all Philip Dick stuff. Um, just it, it was interesting. I mean, he, he was so much a, par, a part of his times, and a lot of his writing is not really good, because as we all know, he was taking speed and writing, you know, twenty-four hours at a time, or even forty-eight hours at a stretch, and he was writing to make money. And a lot of his stuff was, you know, he, he should have he didn't he didn't spend time rewriting enough, you know. And it's obvious, uh, so just in sheer literary terms. But then there were moments when it was absolutely brilliant and everything just came together and you realized that if he'd been a slightly different kind of writer in a slightly different context, he, he could have written stuff that would have been recognized for its literary uh, excellence, you know, which uh, some of it is. Yeah, yeah. And I want to come back to Philip K. Dick, but before that, um, I did say you said that in the 1950s, all the sci-fi stories were about how dehumanizing technology was and how soul-destroying? No, no, not all of it. No, no, I didn't say that. I just said that it was a, it was a tendency in the 50s. Don't forget, it was, you know, Russia. It was the Soviet Union. It was nuclear weapons. Um, it was bomb shelters. Everybody was really scared of that stuff. And that represented the ultimate in technology, really, was nuclear power and nuclear weapons. So the tendency was to demonize it, of course, because every people were afraid of it. So every second story you read was about bomb shelters or nuclear, the world after a nuclear holocaust or whatever. So there was that tendency in the 50s to not really look upon technology as anything positive for mankind, but rather as something pretty devastatingly negative 
That's what it was meaning. Um, so the pick was interesting because that wasn't the stance that he took necessarily. I mean, he he loved to create characters who were like just schleppers of workers, you know, just guys working on technology, you know, guys who would come and fix your your, your talking robotic door that was malfunctioning hmm. and wouldn't let you out of your apartment, you know, even when you put in the 10 cents that you were supposed to put in or 10 credits or whatever it was. You know, and and got down to the nitty gritty of small technology and local technology, and that was really quite sweet and interesting. Uh, his approach to that. Yeah. So, I mean, as a as a teenager, say, did you have the that kind of um, relationship with technology, or did you have more of the nineteen fifties uh, uh, mind frame? And oh no, I think I was always. I I think I I really belong on your blog. I mean, I, I was definitely <laughs> a geek. I don't think I was a nerd socially, but I was definitely a geek and uh, uh, loved technology. And my father was my model for that. He was uh, he was a gadget freak. He loved stuff. I mean, he got the first IBM Selectric in Canada, you know, uh, the, the typewriter that you could actually change the font on, which was unheard of. It was a new, huge new thing. And that it was also an electric typewriter, uh, just enhanced everything. So I used to fall asleep to the sound of his electric hammering away. It was a pretty noisy machine because uh, he was a writer. He was a journalist. And uh, and so technology was always, you know, he would get the first, you know, calculator that, that was available in private hands. You know, that was a big deal. All kinds of just things like that. So it, it was a I had a very cozy personal uh, appreciation of technology. and. Um, and also saw it as enhancing your creative power, uh, as this electric would do. You know, you have a typewriter that's faster and it can do is much more flexible than any typewriter had ever been before, and so on. Uh, and just to just to assert my geek cred, I can tell you that um, I I I did. You know, there was a there was a, a program we used to call them programs, not apps. You know, a program called Mavis Beacon teaches typing, and uh, I got that. Because I had never learned to really touch type properly, or rather I had lost the facility and came back. to I thought, well, now that there are computers, um, and uh, typing is suddenly much more attractive than it ever was with a mechanical typewriter, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll teach myself to touch type. Uh, my father was a great touch typist. I never had really done that. Um, and in this, the booklet for Mavis Beacon teaches typing, you know, this sort of, created fictional typing teacher. Um, it was a whole article on the QWERTY keyboard versus the Dvorak keyboard <laughs> and how the QWERTY keyboard had been designed to slow you down because if you went too fast, you would jam the keys together on your typewriter, which, of course, I had experienced. And I was so outraged at the idea that, <laughs> that it has the technology invented to to you know, as as against what you were trying to do, you know, something that was supposed to be fast, slow, designed to slow you down, that I immediately decided that I would never type QWERTY again, and I would teach myself touch typing using Dvorak. But of course, in those days, you didn't get, along with your, let's say, Mac operating system, the immediate option to convert your keyboard to Dvorak. Uh, Dvorak was like this kind of underground. You know, you, so I actually sent away to certain surreptitious, you know, strange addresses, and I would receive a floppy disk 
that if you, you know, when you inserted it into your computer, you could then convert your keyboard to Dvorak. But it was all kind of, it had a kind of underground feel to it, you know, that you weren't supposed to do it or it wasn't advised or, you know, that sort of thing. And I still type Dvorak. I can't type Courtney. My son can <laughs> type both. But I was outraged. You know, I was outraged about that, 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 that the QWERTY had, the, the universal QWERTY keyboard had been designed to slow you down. That made, made me insane. That was a pretty geeky kind of outrage, I think. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm totally sold that you uh, have established your geek cred. Okay, very good. Thanks. <laughs> and then one more. Uh, when, the, when the specifications of the iPhone 6 came out, I immediately cut a cardboard version of it out and put it in my pocket and carried it around to see if the iPhone Plus 6 Plus would, would be too big or not. <laughs> so that's, that's the latest version. And I did end up getting a Plus, and I'm very happy with it. Uh-huh. Okay, let's let's talk about your your book. So, I mean, you you were writing fiction as a teenager, and then you kind of took a multi decade break from it to uh, make films. And so, then what brought you back to writing prose fiction? Well, I guess I'd never really lost the desire to be a novelist because that was my ambition, and uh, and I do. You know, I've said I was either derailed or kidnapped by cinema or something, you know. But um, it was really when um, the the president and publisher of, of Penguin Canada, a woman named Nicole Winstanley, uh, started to pester me by sending me boxes of books that they were publishing and saying that she had read my screenplays and seen my movies and really thought that I had a novelist sensibility and had I ever thought of writing a novel. And finally got in touch with her and I said, well, only for about 50 years mm-hmm. because I'd, you know, I'd, I'd never really stopped thinking about it, but I guess it had just become a, a dormant ambition. And she said, well, why don't you think about it? I mean, I'd love to publish you. And that really encouraged me, you know, to hear from a serious, uh, someone who is a serious professional in the publishing industry thinking that I could and should write a novel. Um, it was very exciting to me, and that's, I think it just rekindled my desire to write a novel, and I sent her uh, a proposal that had begun as a screenplay, but I, it had really kind of stalled, and, and I now romanticize it, I think, by thinking that it knew that it needed to be a novel and that it wasn't going to be a movie and was waiting for me to realize it, too. So I sent her some pages of what was a, basically a screenplay, and then a little synopsis of where I might go from there. And she said, absolutely, we would publish this. You should just go ahead and write it. Now, that was about eight years ago. And I, I, you can't really say that it took me eight years to write Consume because I actually don't know how long it took. You know, I, I don't know how much seat time in front of the computer was really spent uh, writing the novel because in between I made about four movies, uh, which are, you know, as you might imagine, a major distraction. And so I would be away from the typewriter, uh, my my you know pseudo typewriter, for um, my virtual typewriter, I guess, for uh, for you know a year, a year and a half while I was making a movie, and then come back and try to pick up the thread of the novel. Uh, very difficult to do, you know, because you change. You suddenly think, well, what if I go back to it and it's no good and 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 I don't want to continue it or. What if I go back and it is good, but I, I don't think I can continue it as on the level of goodness that was 
was there, you know. All, all, all of these doubts and insecurities that you have anyway as a writer and exacerbated by the fact of not being able to continue and get any momentum. And so I'm really interested in the idea that I might just write a novel and not do anything else until I finish that novel and see what that feels like and how long it takes me. It would be a quite a different experience, I think. Yeah, and I, and I think that for a first novel, this is just an incredible, the, the prose style is incredibly well done and novelistic. I mean, had you been, I don't know, had, had you written any sort of prose fiction in, in those years? or uh... No, really not. I really hadn't. I mean, I, I think my last attempt to write a novel happened when I was living in the south of France in, in about 1971. Uh, and um, that was when I was just still not sure whether I was just an underground filmmaker who had made a couple of films and or was I going to be a commercial filmmaker who's in the sense that I would make a living as a, as a filmmaker. So it really, not since 1971 had I ever written prose. Well, so, but I mean, you must read a lot of uh, Oh, sure. I've never right? stopped reading novels. I'm always reading novels, and not just novels. I read a lot of stuff. I read science, too, if you might imagine, but um, all kinds of things, actually. Uh, but uh, no, I've never stopped reading. But of course, everybody who reads a novel is not a novelist necessarily, you know, and that's the thing. So you don't really know, you know, you, you, you feel you have a sensitivity to prose and prose style. But, uh, I was one of the reasons that I wanted to write a novel was to see if I had a voice as a novelist, you know, do I have a, I, I was certain that I had a voice as a filmmaker having established that, but I, I wasn't really sure if I had one as a, a novelist and I was interested to see first. Do I have that? And secondly, what what was it? You know, so I, I take it as a huge compliment what you just said about the prose. No, I, I was really really impressed by it. I mean, did you um, have to do a lot of rewriting and polishing the prose, or is that pretty much sort of your how it came out as your natural voice? I think um, there was a fair. I, it 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 was pretty linear. I didn't do much restructuring. Let's say it just sort of flowed that way, and I did do uh, rewriting, but not. Now I've read about people who do 10 drafts, 20 drafts. I, I, I didn't do anything like that. Uh, so it was not really, not huge changes, small changes, which certainly make a difference between a kind of, you know, maybe an awkward sentence and a really beautiful sentence. There's sometimes not a lot of difference between the two. Uh, but it wasn't massive, massive, endless rewriting or anything like that, no. Well, let's talk about the story a little bit. So the um, the book... Uh, concerns prominently a, a married couple called the Arostegis. Uh, why don't you tell us about them? Well, they, they are, it, it's, a, it's a sort of an interesting French phenomenon, the hot philosophy couple, you know, and it's exemplified most by uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, who were, you know, both technically philosophers. They were also writers, novelists, and would write pamphlets, political pamphlets. They they also were very public intellectuals, which is something you don't really see much in North America. Uh, they they because they they were definitely intellectuals who wrote sometimes very difficult philosophical works, but at the same time they were invited to and did comment on uh, current affairs, on politics. They would take very extreme political stances. They would fight for certain political uh, positions. Uh, and would also talk about culture, French culture, and world culture in general, 
No, it's kind of interesting um, phenomenon and and very French in its style. What you 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 have now, uh, Bernard Henri Henri Levy and his wife Ariel Dombas, who is really she's an actress, but they 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 are they're sort of a current version of that kind of hot cultural uh, spokespeople couple, you know. Who, and so uh, Levy Levy is comments on all kinds of controversial political uh, events in, in France and will take very extreme stands. He's not afraid to you know, put himself out there and his wife will back him up, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I just thought that was an interesting... Uh, I, I, I like that uh, idea of that kind of person and, and then counterpoised it with two relatively naive young Americans uh, well, one is sort of half Canadian, uh, Naomi and Nathan, who are journalists who get involved in uh, in various ways, each through a different path, in uh, um, a scandal that involves this hot French couple. Uh, the 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 woman has apparently been murdered by her husband and cannibalized, or partly eaten by him, and he has now disappeared. Nobody knows where he is. Nobody knows if he really did murder her or somebody else did. They're not sure. Could it have been one of her students? And that sort of thing. Uh, and it, it, there's a kind of a Henry James thing there, which is the, you know, there's Henry James, the American novelist who, who, uh, like to, he, he liked to position Americans going abroad to Europe as kind of relatively naive, simple, sweet, uh, Americans. Uh, and and then counterpoise them with the kind of decadent, sophisticated uh, Europeans and and sort of mix them together and see what happens, you know, that kind of thing. And not that I think anybody necessarily thinks of Americans quite that way now, or or even Europeans that way either. But there was there's a bit of that in in uh, in what I've uh, in consumed a bit of that structure. Yeah, although I don't know. If if you would call Nathan and Naomi sweet and innocent exactly, I mean there is a sort of innocent there is a sort of innocence to them, but they're very um, what's the word? I mean they're very worldly and cynical. Um, well, I'd say naive in a way, maybe naive rather than sweet. <laughs> okay. Well, they're naive in, in they're very practiced in in terms of their use of the internet uh, for their profession, and the it's, not, it's kind of the sort of affected cynicism that comes i think somewhat with youth where you you really think you're 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 very tough and then you you meet some people who are really really tough and beyond your imagining and and very and more manipulative than you are aware and so uh, i agree with you this is a, this is definitely not exactly him henry james at all hmm. but it but I, it did at one point occur to me and after the fact of the novel actually that there was a bit of that there, you know, that sort of what happens when America meets Europe, you know. Uh, but you're right, it's a, it's a modern version of that. Mm -hmm. And the, the journalism they practice is interesting. It's called para-journalism, and it's sort of this um, kind of freelance tabloid-style journalism. Um, could you talk about, like, what inspired that? Yeah, well, it's just, you, you can see what's happening now. I mean, the... the I mentioned Tom Wolfe and his invention of of his, what he called new journalism, which was 
very egocentric, it really. It was Tom Wolfe, I'm Tom Wolfe, I'm a journalist, I'm interviewing you, but I'm really the star. And what I think and what my perceptions are, are as valid uh, as yours, no matter who you are, no matter how, how accomplished you are, how famous you are, whether you've won the Nobel Prize or not, this article I'm going to write about you is also going to be very much about me. <laughs> you know? And, and uh, it was considered quite shocking because the standards of journalism used to be that you, you, you know, as a, as a journalist, you were like invisible. You never said I, you never used the first person. Uh, Hunter Thompson, of course, was part of that in his own very uh, sort of extreme way, too. You know, that, that anything he was investigating was all very much about Hunter S. Thompson as well. Um, so that that has kind of become absorbed into the idea of journalism, that it's not considered a complete atrocity to include yourself and your own experiences in your uh, journalistic investigations. But... Um, but we've now gone beyond that because of the internet, and and it's sort of this the idea now is, well, what on the internet is legitimate? Uh, what is what is plagiarism, and what is just sort of general information that's up for grabs? You know, um, and uh, even in in novel writing, there 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 are instances where uh, things taken from Wikipedia in one chunk and put in a novel without attribution. Uh, you're sort of saying, well, is that how legitimate is that? And, you know, it's sort of a crowdsourced uh, information depot. But should you not be uh, confessing that you're using it without modification and so on? So it's a whole new uh, aspect to what you might call new journalism. Is not only are you including your own experiences, but you're also gleaning other people's experiences uh, from the internet as well. You know, you. And I, I have seen that myself. I mean, if I'm considering casting an actor, for example, in a movie, I'll, I'll go to YouTube and watch interviews with the actor just to get a feel for what they're like as a person as opposed to what they do as an actor and that sort of thing. Uh, you can imagine that a journalist about to kind of investigate a murder, finding YouTube videos of both the victim and the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator will will absolutely want to see those videos and, and sort of assess them and maybe include what they see in their journalism. But is how legitimate is that, you know, because those videos were done by somebody else for another purpose. You know, so it's all it's a, it, it it's not really I'm not really criticizing it. Uh, I wouldn't say in fact in the novel I'm actually criticizing anything. I'm taking what I think is a relatively neutral stance. I'm saying these are the things I see happening. Uh, I'm presenting characters to you who are living these kind of lives, using these kind of tools, and you, the uh, reader, can react either negatively. You could say, I hate what these young people are doing. I think it's not legitimate. I'd hate my children to be like them or whatever you, you, you know, your stance is, or not. Or you might say, yeah, that's exactly what's going on, and I wouldn't mind being part of it, you know, so it's, uh, although I think the novel is funny, I mean, I have to, you know, I think there's a lot of humor in the novel, but to me that also comes out of the characters themselves, rather than me imposing any parody or any satire or anything on them. Yeah, I mean, is your impression of young journalists like that? Do you do you meet do people interview you who are like that, or do you Absolutely. read a website? Yeah. Absolutely, they do, and that's part of my experience, yeah, is um, you get it, it's kind of wild because 
you know, for example, uh, I, I get journalists from the old school, from the old days that I've known for like 20 or 30 years who are interviewing me for a newspaper, but now they're holding up their iPhone and, and videoing me uh, with very shaky hands and, and very bad technology because they're forced to do, become videographers. You know, they don't really want to, and they don't really know how to do it very well, but for, the, for their newspaper's website or their own blog or something like that. So, and then you've got the younger journalists who are very adept at it and very confident because they've grown up with it. You know, they know that you're not just going to do print. You're not just going to write. You're going to also do stills and you're also going to do video. Um, and you're going to maybe even edit it yourself, you know, so then you have to have final cut on your laptop or whatever you use and, and so on. So it's, uh, and then yes, I do get absolutely people challenging me saying, you said in a video that you did in 1962 that, you know, it's like, okay, you know, all, all these sources are suddenly really available to people. They don't have to dig around a lot. They can do it. Uh, just on their on their on their phone, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and you mentioned that there's a lot of philosophy in this book, or a lot of you know discussion about philosophy. And the uh, Arostegis, you mentioned the titles of some of their books that include Science Fiction, Money, Apocalyptic Consumerism, A User's Manual, and Labor, Gore, Marx, and Horror. Now, those all sound like fantastic books. I'd love to read them. Um, I could have written them. I, could, I swear I could have written them, <laughs> <laughs> but it would have taken me another five years and. Uh, and I don't think uh, people reading the novel would have wanted to have it in the middle of the novel. But maybe you know, maybe I should. Maybe those are the books I should write next. Uh, but so you you do have a very sort of fleshed out idea of what these books would be about. Definitely, yeah, definitely. You know, it was a, an interesting question for me to decide how technical uh, the philosophy could be from the Arostegis, um because really highly technical philosophy is, is very difficult to read. Uh, you know, you think of Sartre's book, Being in Nothingness, or, or Heidegger's Time and uh, Being in Time, and, and you you know, you, it takes years to read those books because you have to learn a whole new vocabulary. Uh, they, they, you, the first they create an almost an entirely new language because they're discussing things that uh, haven't existed before uh, in thought. And, uh, and uh, you know, in a novel, you, you, there's a momentum and a flow that, you, you know, I, you, you couldn't really do that. So I, I really had to simplify the way that the Arostegis were approached um, in other words, you don't ever see them teaching a class full techno to their students where they would be talking in those very highly technical terms, but you, you see them doing sort of media events where they deliberately have simplified their, their speaking about uh, technology. You know, and at one point, Celestine says, you know, the owner's manual is the, the ultimate literature of our, our, of our present time and that, that sort of thing. Um, and I can and I I, I can imagine uh, a, a modern version of Sartre doing that, you know, diluting his uh, or, or his his philosophy to the point that it could be accessible to to more people. Well, yeah, I mean, and cons and consumerism obviously plays a big role in this story. The title, in fact, of the book is "Consumed," is a bit of a play on that. Um, yeah, could you maybe give us just sort of like a like a caps like if 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 you were to write apocalyptic consumerism the book, what sort of like a one or two sentence uh, synopsis of what it would be about? 
Well, the Iwasakis are taking a kind of a contrarian point of view. Uh, it's very easy to, to criticize consumerism, you know, to the buying useless things, creating useless things, polluting the earth with useless things. And they try, they're, they're just kind of, just to take, to be the devil's advocate, they're saying that no, consumerism is a beautiful, natural thing, and we are creating amazing things that are as, as beautiful as anything that the earth has sort of produced uh, naturally, and that it is an incredible expression of human creativity and emotion, and so on and so on. And that's really, that's their approach. And, and probably if we had ever had a chance to press uh, Aristide Rostegui, the guy, the, the, the man, um, he would admit that he was deliberately taking uh, an extreme position in order to illuminate, uh, you know, the, the debate uh, bet- between the anti-consumerists and the consumerists. And, and of course, it becomes a, a kind of a... a, a a discussion of capitalism as well, because consumerism and capitalism go very well hand in hand together, obviously. And uh, um, it's very traditional for French philosophies to be Marxist or at least very leftist. And uh, and so Rostocki is kind of doing a twist on that as well, um, almost being an anti-Marxist, you know, saying Marx was great um, at understanding capitalism. And and in fact, and I'm saying this, it's, it's true that um, many, many capitalists, many money people read Marx because he, he really understood capitalism a lot better than people who, who were in favor of capitalism. I mean, he, he didn't have any blinkers on. He really saw it for what it was. It's just that they then don't accept his solution to that, which is to get rid of capitalism in favor of socialism or, or communism. But... Um, uh, Marx was very good on capitalism. He's very illuminating. So it, it's sort of that that kind of switcheroo that that uh, that Arostic, the Arostikis are presenting. I mean, how close would you say that your own personal philosophy is to the Arostikis? I mean, certainly many of the things that Aristide says in his kind of novella um, section of the book sound similar to some of the things that you've said yourself. Yes, uh, although I sometimes put them in a the context that negates them you know what i mean and uh, but but yes uh well as a as a tech geek i have to say that you know yeah i part of me loves the the devices that consumerism produces you know and 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 uh uh and that extends our lives and compresses time and space and like the internet does and like airplanes do and all of that stuff and at the same time i can be very cold-blooded and seeing that, yes, it's quite possible that we are, with our technology, completely destroying the Earth and that it's just not going to last very long if we keep doing that. I don't have a solution for it, you know, at all, Uh, but I can see it. I see it clearly. And uh, uh, I have emotional, uh, an emotional divide about all of that. so there you go. I mean, that's the, I, the, the thing I have to say is that I, I, as a novelist and even, and as a filmmaker as well, I don't present myself as a prophet who has the answers. You know, I don't have the answers, but I do have a lot of the questions, and I do have a lot of observations. So I make those observations, and then I leave it to my readers to maybe draw some conclusions themselves. 
Well, well, right. I mean, for example, on that point, there's something that Aristide is reported in the book to say that an artist is not a manufacturer and that meaning is a consumer item. Yeah, Aristide is actually smarter than I am. <laughs> kind of interesting, but he should be, being the, the world-famous philosopher that he is. Um, to, you know, for, for, if you're an existentialism, there, there is no meaning in human life or in the universe at all. And it, it, it's not like you're presented with meaning, that your life is there. You know, it, it, of course, uh, almost all religions are there to provide you with some meaning. You know, they, they, they say, oh, yes, you're there to complete God's plan or to do this or to do that or to be a representative of the, the morality of whatever. Um, but that's a created thing. You know, for me... That's a consumer item. That's a, you. You a religion is a is a a means of creating meaning for people who are desperate for meaning, but who don't have it without a structure like, let's say, religion. Um, and so uh, I I think that all meaning is is a human construct. I don't think it's there's not an abstract meaning with a capital M that exists outside our lives. We we have to create it for ourselves, and there are many ways of doing that. We do it through art, we do it through religion, we do it through culture, we do it through, you know, family, and so on and so on. But, uh, so that's that's really what he means, and I, I do believe that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever read a book by Thorstein Veblen called The Theory of the Leisure Class? No. Uh, okay. Uh, that's a, a book, I, I studied uh, political philosophy in college, and that's a book I read. And, and one thing that he says in there is that children are the ultimate luxury consumer item. <laughs> and uh, that always just stuck in my head. And, and this the same thing it seems with meaning that these things that we think of as being the most um, important or sacred things, you just have to squint a little bit to see them as actually just things, just, just gizmos. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's a, yes. I mean, um, I think if you're as an artist, one of the things you, you have to offer is that clarity of vision, you know, with no bullshit. Um, even if you, you can't really say yourself what the meaning quotes, uh, of what you're observing is your your observation should be absolutely clear and astute, and not easy to do. And especially, you know, I mean, human culture and human society is incredibly complex and confusing. And with the internet now and sort of the, the global reach uh, that you can have just sitting in your office or your bedroom, um, it's become even more confusing and more tumultuous and more full of information of all kinds. So that clarity is in short supply, I think. Mm -hmm. And then another thing that Aristide says that sounds like something you might say is, uh, quote, reality is neurology. Yes. Totally believe that myself, yes. Um, well, I like to use the simple dog analogy. You know, you're sitting there and you're, you know, in your, in your chair and you're, you have your your pet dog at your feet, and you're both sitting in the same space and time, and yet, what is the reality for your dog at that moment? I mean, the dog is a legitimate, sentient being, as you are, and yet, its understanding of reality, its perception, its experience of reality, let's say, is completely different from yours. Smell, color, all the things that we think are kind of absolutes, or at least communal, uh, sense of space, sense of time, uh, language, color, uh, smell, hearing, all completely different for your dog sitting in that same space. So 
there are two realities there in that room, and they're equally valid. And so I say, well, the difference is two different nervous systems, basically. Um, that's the difference. Our, our understanding of reality is, is really has to do with our neurology, our, our sense organs, and uh, the way our brains function, and, and our spines, and our you know neurons, and um, and so that's there. Then I come up with you know, reality is neurology, and I can then say that something like the internet is changing our reality in not just like the way we perceive things, but actually neurologically. I think that we are neurologically different uh, than, for example, like the Greeks 3,000 years ago. Uh, we were literally physically different. And it, it's become very known uh, that our brains are not a static thing that develops at the age of, you know, finally matures at the age of 18 or something like that and never changes. It used to be thought that that was the case, that you had a, a, a complement of neurons and they didn't change. And now we know that's completely untrue. The, uh, the Nobel Prize winning neurologist, uh, Gerald Edelman, said that the brain is much more like a rainforest than it is like a computer. There's a constant struggle for dominance amongst the neurons in your brain and they're constantly changing and the ones that you use become stronger and the ones that you don't use wither away and die and your brain is constantly changing and so if that's true which and i, I think it's now demonstrably true just by using scanners and so on of various kinds uh then your reality is changing you know your reality is changing and you we are we have absorbed the internet into our nervous systems and it has made us different we are definitely different Okay, well, that that does um, maybe bring us back to Philip K. Dick, this idea of subjective reality. And in uh, Consumed, you do mention Philip K. Dick's novel, The Divine Invasion. Yes. Um, is there a, a particular reason that you mentioned that novel in this in this one? Well, I think it was you have to not take it out of context. You know, he was really talking about uh, a change. This was Aristide talking about a change in his wife, Celestine a change in which she started to have what he thought were delusions about her body and and an infestation in particular of insects into her left breast and wondering if she had perhaps had a stroke and and was was now kind of delusional and that that the stroke had altered her brain to the point where she totally believed and experienced this thing that couldn't be possible and uh, I was thinking about um, Dick's novel, um, Divine Invasion. You know, his post-stroke work became very religious in, a, in an odd way and very uh, hallucinatory in a way that it hadn't been before, even though before, you know, it was there were some elements of that in it, but, but later it became very uh, sort of Christian and... and uh, uh, but in a strange, a strange version of Christianity, I think. Um, and and the, there is a suggestion, although you can't, I, I don't think you can prove it, but that his strokes, he had multiple strokes, actually, and they ultimately killed him. And it, it certainly believed that it was because he used amphetamine so, so frequently and so consistently that he did die of, of strokes uh, uh, at, a, at a really early age. Um, but that his that his 
his sort of his, the visions that he was having, and he and he had visions were were really stroke that they were induced by his strokes, rather than um, just a sort of religious conversion, and um, and that's why it was mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned the insects there, and that uh, that reminds me of another uh, quote that really struck me in the book, where Aristide says, especially like as a science fiction fan, Aristide says. It always amused me to observe the pathetically desperate hunger expressed in popular culture for life forms on other planets when underneath the very feet of these seekers of aliens, ants roundly ignored by them, were the most exotic, grotesque, and fabulous life forms imaginable. Yeah. Totally uh, something that I've said myself <laughs> and, uh, and believe, you know, as a, as a, as a big uh, sort of junior entomologist as a kid and, and still, you know, I'm right now I'm reading E.L. Wilson's a uh, book on ants called Superorganism, which is very, very technical and very fantastic. Um, and just the life of ants as, as a, an alien life form, I mean, you can't believe it. I don't think anybody in science fiction has an, invented anything as phenomenal as, as, as the, the, you know, the life of ants. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, that's, I think it, it's just, and it did strike me that, that it is ironic that people um, you know, have their head looking up in the, to the stars when when right here on Earth is all all of those things. That quote is accurate. I mean, can you think of anything specific that's just really, really bizarre and alien about insects that most people probably don't know? Well, for the ants, I mean, it's, for example, that they have a language that's chemical. You know, emitting chemicals is how they speak to each other and, and, and induce uh, communal action. And will leave trails of of chemical scents and so on that will tell them that to follow this trail because there's food at the other end of it, or to be be wary because there there's danger there. And it's all it's a, it's a language in chemistry and chemicals, and they have glands in their bodies that produce very subtle mixtures of of chemicals that um, uh, chemical compounds that are. Uh, are received by other ants as basically as language. So, you know, I mean, whoever came up with that in sci-fi. Okay, so this book has a blurb from Viggo Mortensen, and he says that you uh, will probably be accused of every sin that can be invented to compensate for human fear of mind and body. Uh, was he correct about that? Have you uh, now been accused of every sin? You think? I haven't been accused of every sin yet. I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting. Uh, We'll see. But he knows that in my career, anyway, as a filmmaker, uh, at certain points, uh, for example, when I made the movie Crash, uh, yeah, I was attacked for all kinds of things, misogyny and, you know, you, you name it. Um, so he, he feels, it, it, we'll see. I, I think the book world, the reading public, is different than the movie world. And we'll see. We'll see. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, so I have uh, some listener questions. Let's see, do I have time? Um, I guess I'll do... Um, Jewin Road says, was the film Videodrome actually a prophetic film about social media? Quote, death to Facebook, long live the new flesh. Um, well, the thing is, it's easy to see in retrospect that it feels like that. I, you know, I uh, um, certainly in in the movie, I kind of create the idea of interactive TV, like very, very directly interactive TV, where, where you're f- almost physically entering into the TV set. And that feels now very much like what we do with the Internet and so on, uh, even to the extent of touch screens and so on. 
um, I never thought of myself as a prophet. You know, it, there, were, there was definitely a strain in science fiction uh, that was designed to be prophetic. For example, um, uh, the idea of, you know, um, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember the the, the, the writer who who uh, predicted satellites. Um, uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Oh uh, yes, of course, Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah, uh, and he, he was very proud of that the, the idea that he predicted uh, satellite communication um, many many decades before it actually happened, and and for him that was a source of pride because he was more of a techno sci-fi writer than let's say a fantasy or imaginative sci-fi writer but for me i was that was never a part of i never really thought of that was i really anticipating something that would actually happen um it didn't really matter to me i was really um it, it was the imagery and the feel of it you know uh rather than an attempt to assess all the developments that i come about so far and then to make a sort of a, a very coldly calculated prediction about what, what could happen from there. For example, the uh, plug-in umbilical cords for gamesters in, um, in existence is just, you know, I mean, I'm not really saying, yeah, we're going to be plugging directly into our spines, but at the same time, why not? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's certainly physiologically possible if the technology is there it's physiologically possible that you could have uh, a game that would play directly into your nervous system rather than being mediated through your eyes and your ears uh, and um, so I, it's not that I need it to happen to come true it's just it's sort of a playful invention which is part of the delight of any you know narrative creation is uh, it's a playful thing just like kids playing and it brings you into the world when you do something like that. In other words, you are creating, when you create new creatures and new uh, physiologies, you feel like you've, you've sort of contributed to nature, even though you haven't actually. Uh, it's, a, it's a lovely feeling as, a, as an artist to do that. And, it, and being prophetically accurate is not really part of that for me. If, it, if accidentally you come up with something, for example, um, in Rabbit, I came up with uh, stem cells, basically. And and it was from my reading in science that I could see that there had to be a basic cell that could transmute into any kind of cell in the human body, given the proper context. And so in Rabbit, I actually have you know a device that you, you take a skin graft, you neutralize it so that it is now basically a bunch of stem cells. And then wherever you put it in the body, it will read its position in the body and and develop into, let's say, a kidney or a, a liver or whatever is required. And actually, I mentioned that in shivers as well. In that case, I was talking about a parasite that would do that, a parasite that would, instead of being a, a um, sort of a negative aspect, you know, a negative uh uh, visitor to your body would actually provide you with some help to get your body working again, you know, and, and evolve from being a parasite into, let's say, a kind of strange kidney or, or whatever it was you were missing. So these things have come to pass, basically, you know, and, and uh, it, it kind of delights me in retrospect to see that that's the way things have gone. It, I, don't, I don't get too much 
nobody's paying the residuals for for that invention. <laughs> but uh, but it's fun to sort of see that uh, my anticipations of those things were right. Well, I mean, yeah, with all the sort of medical stuff, um, I mean, there's so many weird conditions and things in this book. I have just have a list of like apodomnophilia, Copgras syndrome, Peyronie's disease, Dupuytren's contracture. I mean, I just imagine you must have this big like shelf full of medical textbooks or something like how, where do you come up with all these strange medical well they're all on the internet you know yeah. <laughs> i mean it's true that uh when i was doing let's say dead ringers i did get a couple of immense medical books on gynecology and so on um just so that i knew what i was talking about and uh these days i wouldn't have to do that you can find that stuff on the net but um uh, it's just, you know, people, as you age, I mean, you, you, you talk, you're, you and your friends, you've been friends for many years, you talk more and more about medical stuff. It's, 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 it's the subject of comedies, you know, but, you know, you, you spend all your time talking about your latest trip to the hospital or your, you know, the latest condition that took you by surprise. And then you start to think about all of those things. And, uh, and then even in, in the newspapers and websites, there's a kind of almost a disease of the week thing. Like, okay, what's the latest outrageous uh, syndrome that nobody had ever heard of before? <laughs> so it's it's all out there. You know, I think, once again, um, it's rather than being a, a prophet, you, are, you have these antennae, like a very good insect, that are very sensitive to what's in the zeitgeist, and you and you are downloading that, and you are playing with that as a as an artist. And sometimes your antenna are a little more sensitive than other people's, and so you you haul on some things and and pull them together in ways that other people might not have pulled them together. You know that's what you do as an artist, I think. Mm-hmm. All right, so I could definitely talk about this all day, but unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time here. So just to wrap things up, um, could you just tell us about um, what sort of upcoming projects you have? Are you going to write another book? Are you going to? Well, I yeah, I mean, I have no more. I have no film projects at the moment, and uh, and in a way I, that pleases me because uh, it's taken me ten years to get uh, Maps of the Stars made, and you know, it seems to take ten years to get every movie made that's interesting. Um, and at the moment, I've run out of all those 10-year projects. I've gotten them, most of them made anyway. And so I'm looking forward to writing another novel. I mean, that's at the moment, that's what I'm going to do. All right. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Well, thanks a lot. I've enjoyed this. All right. So, uh, so David Cronenberg, his new novel is called uh, Consumed. So thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you. And that was our interview. So a big thanks again to David Cronenberg for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Thomas Anderson in Denmark and MHXJOOC in Sweden. And of course, a very special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including our newest crowdfunder, Ovaldus Miliauskas from Lithuania, who just became crowdfunder number 92. This episode was also made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Leonid Levchenko. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. And if you live in the New York area, you should come out and meet Jeff Vandermeer, our guest from episode 103 at Barnes & Noble in Tribeca on November 23rd. To learn more, follow Geeks Guide NYC on Twitter. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. 
For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarrKirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.